0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Introduction to Main Street by Sinclair Lewis.
1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Nelson Main Street This is America, a town of a few thousand, in a region of weed and corn and dairies and little groves. The town is, in our tale, called Gopher Prairie, Minnesota but its Main Street is the continuation of Main Streets everywhere. The story would be the same in Ohio or Montana, in Kansas or Kentucky or Illinois, and not very differently would it be told up York State or in the Carolina Hills. Main Street is the climax of civilization. That this Ford car might stand in front of the Bon Ton store, Hannibal invaded Rome and Erasmus rode in Oxford Cloisters. What old Jensen the grocer says to Ezra Stowbody the banker is the new law for London, Prague, and the unprofitable Isles of the Sea. Whatsoever Ezra does not know and sanction, that thing is heresy, worthless for knowing, and wicked to consider. Our railway station is the final aspiration of architecture. Sam Clark's annual hardware turnover is the envy of the four counties which constitute God's country. In the sensitive art of the Rosebud movie-palace there is a message, and humour strictly moral. Such is our comfortable tradition and sure faith. Would he not betray himself an alien cynic who should otherwise portray Main Street, or distress the citizens by speculating whether there may not be other faiths? End of Introduction Chapter 1 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis This Librivox recording is in the public domain Chapter 1 1 On a hill by the Mississippi where Chippewa's camped two generations ago a girl stood in relief against the cornflower blue of northern sky she saw no Indians now she saw flour mills and the blinking windows of skyscrapers in Minneapolis and St Paul Nor was she thinking of squaws and portages, and the Yankee fur-traders whose shadows were all about her. She was meditating upon walnut fudge, the plays of Briou, the reasons why heels run over, and the fact that the chemistry instructor had stared at the new coiffure which concealed her ears. A breeze which had crossed a thousand miles of wheatlands bellied her taffeta skirt in a line so graceful, so full of animation and moving beauty. That the heart of a chance watcher on the lower road tightened to wistfulness over the quality of suspended freedom. She lifted her arms, she leaned back against the wind, her skirt dipped and flared, a lock blew wild. A girl on a hilltop, credulous, plastic, young, drinking the air as she longed to drink life. The eternal aching comedy of expectant youth. It is Carol Milford fleeing for an hour from Blodgett College. The days of pioneering, of lassies in sunbonnets and bears killed with axes in piney clearings are deader now than Camelot, and a rebellious girl is the spirit of that bewildered empire called the American Middle West. 2. Blodgett College is on the edge of Minneapolis. It is a bulwark of sound religion it is still combating the recent heresies of Voltaire, Darwin, and Robert Ingersoll. Pious families in Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, send their children thither, and Blodgett protects them from the wickedness of the universities. But it secretes friendly girls, young men who sing, and one lady instructress who really likes Milton and Carlyle. So the four years which Carol spent at Blodgett were not altogether wasted. The smallness of the school, the fewness of rivals, permitted her to experiment with her perilous versatility. She played tennis, gave chafing-dish parties, took a graduate seminar in the drama, went toosing, and joined half a dozen societies for the practice of the arts or the tense stalking of a thing called general culture. In her class there were two or three prettier girls, but none more eager. She was noticeable equally in the classroom grind and at dances, though out of the three hundred students of Blodgett scores recited more accurately and dozens bostoned more smoothly. Every cell of her body was alive—thin wrists, quince-blossom skin, ingenue eyes, black hair. The other girls in her dormitory marvelled at the slightness of her body when they saw her in sheer negligee, or darting out wet from a shower-bath. She seemed then but half as large as they had supposed, a fragile child who must be cloaked with understanding kindness. "'Psychic,' the girls whispered, and, "'spiritual!' Yet so radioactive were her nerves, so adventurous her trust in rather vaguely conceived sweetness and light, that she was more energetic than any of the hulking young women who, with calves bulging in heavy-ribbed woolen stockings beneath decorous blue serge-bloomers, thuddingly galloped across the floor of the gym in practice for the Blodgett ladies' basketball team. Even when she was tired her dark eyes were observant. She did not yet know the immense ability of the world to be casually cruel and proudly dull, but if she should ever learn those dismaying powers her eyes would never become sullen or heavy or roomily amorous. For all her enthusiasms, for all the fondness and the crushes which she inspired. Carol's acquaintances were shy of her. When she was most ardently singing hymns or planning deviltry she yet seemed gently aloof and critical. She was credulous, perhaps, a born hero-worshipper. Yet she did question and examine unceasingly. Whatever she might become she would never be static. Her versatility ensnared her. By turns she hoped to discover that she had an unusual voice a talent for the piano, the ability to act, to write, to manage organizations. Always she was disappointed, but always she ever vested anew, over the student volunteers who intended to become missionaries, over painting scenery for the dramatic club, over soliciting advertisements for the college magazine. She was on the peak that Sunday afternoon when she played in chapel. Out of the dusk her violin took up the organ theme, and the candlelight revealed her in a straight golden frock, her arm arched to the bow, her lips serious. Every man fell in love then with religion and carol. Throughout senior year she anxiously related all her experiments and partial successes to a career. Daily, on the library steps or in the hall of the main building, the co talked of "'What shall we do when we finish college?' Even the girls who knew that they were going to be married pretended to be considering important business positions. Even they who knew that they would have to work hinted about fabulous suitors. As for Carol, she was an orphan. Her only near relative was a vanilla-flavored sister married to an optician in St. Paul. She had used most of the money from her father's estate. She was not in love, that is, not often, nor even long at a time she would earn her living. But how she was to earn it, how she was to conquer the world almost entirely for the world's own good, she did not see. Most of the girls who were not betrothed meant to be teachers. Of these there were two sorts—careless young women who admitted that they intended to leave the beastly classroom and grubby children the minute they had a chance to marry and studious, sometimes bulbous-browed and pop-eyed maidens, who at class prayer-meetings requested God to guide their feet along the paths of greatest usefulness. Neither sort tempted Carol. The former seemed insincere, a favorite word of hers at this era. The earnest virgins were, she fancied, as likely to do harm as to do good by their faith in the value of parsing Caesar. At various times during senior year, Carol finally decided upon studying law, writing motion picture scenarios, professional nursing, and marrying an unidentified hero. Then she found a hobby in sociology. The sociology instructor was new. He was married, and therefore taboo, but he had come from Boston, he had lived among poets and socialists and Jews and millionaire uplifters at the university settlement in New York, and he had a beautiful white strong neck. He led a giggling class through the prisons, the charity bureaus, the employment agencies of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Trailing at the end of the line, Carol was indignant at the prodding curiosity of the others, their manner of staring at the poor as at a zoo. She felt herself a great liberator. She put her hand to her mouth, her forefinger and thumb quite painfully pinching her lower lip, and frowned and enjoyed being aloof. A classmate named Stuart Snyder, a competent, bulky young man in a gray flannel shirt, a rusty black bow-tie, and the green and purple class cap, grumbled to her as they walked behind the others in the muck of the South St. Paul stockyards. These college chumps make me tired. They're so top-lofty. They ought to have worked on the farm, the way I have. These workmen put it all over them." "'I just love common workmen,' glowed Carol. Only you don't want to forget that common workmen don't think they're common." You're right. I apologize. Carol's brows lifted in the astonishment of emotion, in a glory of abasement. Her eyes mothered the world. Stuart Snyder peered at her. He rammed his large red fists into his pockets, he jerked them out, he resolutely got rid of them by clenching his hands behind him, and he stammered, "'I know. You get people most of these darn co-eds. Say, Carol, you could do a lot for people. Oh, oh, well, you know, sympathy and everything. If you were—say you were a lawyer's wife. You'd understand his clients. I'm going to be a lawyer. I admit I fall down in sympathy sometimes. I get so doggone impatient with people that can't stand the gaff. You'd be good for a fellow that was too serious. Make him more— more, you know, sympathetic." His slightly pouting lips, his mastiff eyes, were begging her to beg him to go on. She fled from the steamroller of his sentiment. She cried, "'Oh, see those poor sheep! Millions and millions of them!' She darted on. Stuart was not interesting. He hadn't a shapely white neck, and he had never lived among celebrated reformers. She wanted, just now, to have a cell in a settlement house, like a nun without the bother of a black robe, and be kind and read Bernard Shaw and enormously improve a horde of grateful poor. The supplementary reading in Sociology led her to a book on village improvement, tree planting, town pageants, girls' clubs. It had pictures of greens and garden walls in France, New England, Pennsylvania. She had picked it up carelessly. With a slight yawn which she patted down with her fingertips as delicately as a cat. She dipped into the book, lounging on her window-seat, with her slim, Lyle-stockinged legs crossed, and her knees up under her chin. She stroked a satin pillow while she read. About her was the clothy exuberance of a blodgett college room, cretonne-covered window-seat, photographs of girls, a carbon print of the Colosseum, a chafing-dish, And a dozen pillows embroidered or beaded or pyrographed. Shockingly out of place was a miniature of the dancing bacchante. It was the only trace of Carol in the room. She had inherited the rest from generations of girl students. It was as a part of all this commonplaceness that she regarded the treatise on village improvement. But she suddenly stopped fidgeting. She strode into the book. She had fled halfway through it before the three o'clock bell called her to the class in English history. She sighed. That's what I'll do after college. I'll get my hands on one of these prairie towns and make it beautiful. Be an inspiration. I suppose I'd better become a teacher then, but.... I won't be that kind of a teacher. I won't drone. Why should they have all the garden suburbs on Long Island? Nobody has done anything with the ugly towns here in the northwest except hold revivals and build libraries to contain the Elsie books. I'll make em put in a village green and darling cottages and a quaint main street." Thus she triumphed through the class, which was a typical bludgeon contest between a dreary teacher and unwilling children of twenty, won by the teacher because his opponents had to answer his questions, while their treacherous queries he could counter by demanding, "'Have you looked that up in the library?' Well then, suppose you do?" The history instructor was a retired minister. He was sarcastic to-day. He begged of sporting young Mr. Charlie Holmberg. Now, Charles, would it interrupt your undoubtedly fascinating pursuit of that malevolent fly, if I were to ask you to tell us that you do not know anything about King John? He spent three delightful minutes in assuring himself of the fact that no one exactly remembered the date of Magna Carta. Carol did not hear him. She was completing the roof of a half-timbered town hall. She had found one man in the prairie village who did not appreciate her picture of winding streets and arcades, but she had assembled the town council and dramatically defeated him. Three. Though she was Minnesota-born, Carol was not an intimate of the prairie villages. Her father, the smiling and shabby, the learned and teasingly kind, had come from Massachusetts, and through all her childhood he had been a judge in Mankato, which is not a prairie town, but in its garden-sheltered streets and aisles of elms is white and green New England reborn. Mankato lies between cliffs and the Minnesota River, hard by Traverse des Sioux, where the first settlers made treaties with the Indians and the cattle rustlers once came galloping before hell for leather posses. As she climbed along the banks of the dark river, Carol listened to its fables about the wide land of yellow waters and bleached buffalo-bones to the west, the southern levees and singing darkies and palm-trees toward which it was forever mysteriously gliding. And she heard again the startled bells and thick puffing of high-stacked river-steamers wrecked on sand-reefs sixty years ago. Along the decks, She saw missionaries, gamblers in tall pot-hats, and Dakota chiefs with scarlet blankets. Far-off whistles at night, round the river-bend, plunking paddles re-echoed by the pines, and a glow on black sliding waters. Carol's family were self-sufficient in their inventive life, with Christmas a rite full of surprises and tenderness, and dressing-up parties, spontaneous and joyously absurd the beasts in the Milford hearth mythology were not the obscene night-animals who jump out of closets and eat little girls, but beneficent and bright-eyed creatures, the Tam-Hattab, who is woolly and blue and lives in the bathroom, and runs rapidly to warm small feet, the ferruginous oil-stove, who purrs and knows stories, and the skittimerig who will play with children before breakfast, if they spring out of bed and close the window at the very first line of the song about puellas, which father sings while shaving." Judge Milford's pedagogical scheme was to let the children read whatever they pleased, and in his brown library Carol absorbed Balzac and Rabelais and Thoreau and Max Muller. He gravely taught them the letters on the backs of the encyclopedias, and when polite visitors asked about the mental progress of the little ones, they were horrified to hear the children earnestly repeating, A-and, and-os, os-bis, bis-cal, cal-cha. Carol's mother died when she was nine. Her father retired from the judiciary when she was eleven and took the family to Minneapolis. There he died two years after. Her sister, a busy proper advisory soul, older than herself, had become a stranger to her even when they lived in the same house. From those early brown and silver days, and from her independence of relatives, Carol retained a willingness to be different from the brisk, efficient, book-ignoring people. An instinct to observe and wonder at their bustle, even when she was taking part in it. But she felt approvingly, as she discovered her career of town planning, she was now roused to being brisk and efficient herself. In a month Carol's ambition had clouded. Her hesitancy about becoming a teacher had returned. She was not, she worried, strong enough to endure the routine, and she could not picture herself standing before grinning children and pretending to be wise and decisive. But the desire for the creation of a beautiful town remained. When she encountered an item about a small-town women's clubs or a photograph of a straggling main street, She was homesick for it. She felt robbed of her work. It was the advice of the professor of English which led her to study professional library work in a Chicago school. Her imagination carved and colored the new plan. She saw herself persuading children to read charming fairy tales, helping young men to find books on mechanics, being ever so courteous to old men who were hunting for newspapers. The light of the library, an authority on books invited to dinners with poets and explorers, reading a paper to an association of distinguished scholars. Five. The last faculty reception before commencement. In five days they would be in the cyclone of final examinations. The House of the President had been massed with palms suggestive of polite undertaking parlours and in the library, a ten-foot room with a globe and the portraits of Whittier and Martha Washington, the student orchestra was playing Carmen and Madame Butterfly. Carol was dizzy with music and the emotions of parting. She saw the palms as a jungle, the pink-shaded electric globes as an opaline haze, and the eyeglassed faculty as Olympians. She was melancholy at sight of the mousy girls with whom she had always intended to get acquainted and the half-dozen young men who were ready to fall in love with her. But it was Stuart Snyder whom she encouraged. He was so much manlier than the others. He was an even warm brown, like his new ready-made suit with its padded shoulders. She sat with him, and with two cups of coffee and a chicken-patty, upon a pile of presidential overshoes in the coat-closet under the stairs, and as the thin music seeped in, Stuart whispered, "'I can't stand it this breaking up after four years, the happiest years of life." She believed it. Oh, I know! To think that in just a few days we'll be parting and we'll never see some of the bunch again. Carol, you got to listen to me. You always duck when I try to talk seriously to you, but you got to listen to me. I'm going to be a big lawyer, maybe a judge, and I need you, and I'd protect you. His arm slid behind her shoulders. The insinuating music drained her independence. She said mournfully, "'Would you take care of me?' She touched his hand. It was warm, solid. "'You bet I would. We'd have, Lord, we'd have bully times in Yankton, where I'm going to settle. But I want to do something with life.' "'What's better than making a comfy home and bringing up some cute kids?' and knowing nice homey people." It was the immemorial male reply to the restless woman. Thus to the young Sappho spake the melon vendors. thus the captains to Zenobia. And in the damp cave over gnawed bones the hairy suitor thus protested to the woman advocate of matriarchy. In the dialect of Blodgett College, but with the voice of Sappho, was Carol's answer. "'Of course, I know. I suppose that's so. Honestly, I do love children. But there's lots of women that can do housework, but I—well, if you have got a college education, you ought to use it for the world. I know, but you can use it just as well in the home. And gee, Carol, just think of a bunch of us going out on an auto picnic some nice spring evening. Yes, and sleigh-riding in winter and going fishing. Blar! the orchestra had crashed into the soldier's chorus, and she was protesting. No, no, you're a dear, but I want to do things. I don't understand myself, but I want... everything in the world. Maybe I can't sing or write, but I know I can be an influence in library work. Just suppose I encourage some boy, and he became a great artist. I will. I will do it. Stuart, dear... I can't settle down to nothing but dishwashing. Two minutes later, two hectic minutes, they were disturbed by an embarrassed couple also seeking the idyllic seclusion of the overshoe closet. After graduation, she never saw Stuart Snyder again. She wrote to him once a week for one month. Six. A year Carol spent in Chicago. Her study of library cataloging, recording, books of reference, was easy and not too somniferous. She reveled in the art institute, in symphonies and violin recitals and chamber music, in the theater and classic dancing. She almost gave up library work to become one of the young women who dance in cheesecloth in the moonlight. She was taken to a certified studio party, with beer, cigarettes, bobbed hair, and a Russian Jewess who sang the Internationale. It cannot be reported that Carol had anything significant to say to the Bohemians. She was awkward with them and felt ignorant, and she was shocked by the free manners which she had for years desired. But she heard and remembered discussions of Freud, Romain-Roland, Syndicalism, the Confederation Generale du Travail, Feminism versus Haremism, Chinese lyrics, Nationalization of Minds, Christian Science, and Fishing in Ontario. She went home, and that was the beginning and the end of her Bohemian life. The second cousin of Carol's sister's husband lived in Winnetka, and once invited her out to Sunday dinner. She walked back through Wilmette and Evanston, discovered new forms of suburban architecture, and remembered her desire to recreate villages. She decided that she would give up library work, and, by a miracle whose nature was not very clearly revealed to her, turn a prairie town into Georgian houses and Japanese bungalows. The next day in library class she had to read a theme on the use of the cumulative index, and she was taken so seriously in the discussion that she put off her career of town planning, and in the autumn she was in the public library of St. Paul. 7. Carol was not unhappy, and she was not exhilarated, in the St. Paul library she slowly confessed that she was not visibly affecting lives. She did at first put into her contact with the patrons a willingness which should have moved worlds, but so few of these stolid worlds wanted to be moved. When she was in charge of the magazine room the readers did not ask for suggestions about elevated essays. They grunted, want to find the Leather Goods Gazette for last February. When she was giving out books the principal query was, Can you tell me of a good, light, exciting love-story to read? My husband's going away for a week." She was fond of the other librarians, proud of their aspirations, and by the chance of propaniquity she read scores of books unnatural to her gay white littleness. Volumes of anthropology with ditches of footnotes filled with heaps of small dusty type. Parisian imagists, Hindu recipes for curry, voyages to the Solomon Islands, theosophy with modern American improvements, treatises upon success in the real estate business. She took walks and was sensible about her shoes and diet. And never did she feel that she was living. She went to dances and suppers at the houses of college acquaintances, sometimes she one-stepped demurely, sometimes, in dread of life slipping past, she turned into a bacchanal, her tender eyes excited, her throat tense, as she slid down the room. During her three years of library work several men showed diligent interest in her, the treasurer of a fur manufacturing firm, a teacher, a newspaper reporter, and a petty railroad official. None of them made her more than pause in thought. For months no mail emerged from the mass. Then, at the Marbury's, she met Dr. Will Kennicott. End of Chapter 1 Chapter 2 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 1. It was a frail and blue and lonely Carol who trotted to the flat of the Johnson Marburys for Sunday evening supper. Mrs. Marbury was a neighbor and friend of Carol's sister, Mr. Marbury, a traveling representative of an insurance company they made a specialty of sandwich-salad-coffee lap suppers, and they regarded Carol as their literary and artistic representative. She was the one who could be depended upon to appreciate the Caruso phonograph record, and the Chinese lantern which Mr. Marbury had brought back as his present from San Francisco. Carol found the Marburys admiring, and therefore, admirable. This September Sunday evening she wore a net frock with a pale pink lining. A nap had soothed away the faint lines of tiredness beside her eyes. She was young, naive, stimulated by the coolness. She flung her coat at the chair in the hall of the flat, and exploded into the green plush living room. The familiar group were trying to be conversational. She saw Mr. Marbury, a woman teacher of gymnastics in a high school, a chief clerk from the great Northern Railway offices, a young lawyer. But there was also a stranger a thick tall man of thirty-six or seven, with stolid brown hair, lips used to giving orders, eyes which followed everything good-naturedly, and clothes which you could never quite remember. Mr. Marbury boomed. "'Carol, come over here and meet Doc Kennicott! Dr. Will Kennicott of Gopher Prairie. He does all our insurance-examining up in that neck of the woods, and they do say he's some doctor." She edged toward the stranger and murmured nothing in particular. Carol remembered that Gopher Prairie was a Minnesota wheat prairie town of something over three thousand people. "'Pleased to meet you,' stated Dr. Kennicott. His hand was strong, the palm soft, but the back weathered, showing golden hairs against firm red skin. He looked at her as though she was an agreeable discovery. She tugged her hand free and fluttered, I must go out to the kitchen and help Mrs. Marbury." She did not speak to him again till after she had heated the rolls and passed the paper napkins, Mr. Marbury captured her with a loud, "'Oh, quit fussing now! Come over here and sit down and tell us how's tricks!' He herded her to a sofa with Dr. Kennicott, who was rather vague about the eyes, rather drooping of bulky shoulder, as though he was wondering what he was expected to do next. As their host left them, Kennicott awoke. Marbury tells me you're a high mogul in the public library. I was surprised. Didn't hardly think you were old enough. I thought you were a girl, still in college, maybe." Oh, I'm dreadfully old. I expect to take a lipstick and to find a gray hair any morning now. Huh! You must be frightfully old. Probably too old to be my granddaughter, I guess." Thus in the Vale of Arcady Nymph and Satyr beguiled the hours. Precisely thus, and not in honeyed pentameters, discoursed Elaine and the worn Sir Lancelot in the pleached alley. "'How do you like your work?' asked the doctor. "'It's pleasant, but sometimes I feel shut off from things—the steel stacks and the everlasting cards smeared all over with red rubber stamps. "'Don't you get sick of the city?' "'St. Paul, why, don't you like it?' I don't know of any lovelier view than when you stand on Summit Avenue and look across Lower Town to the Mississippi Cliffs and the upland farms beyond. I know, but... of course, I've spent nine years around the Twin Cities, took my B.A. and M.D. over at the U, and had my internship in a hospital in Minneapolis. But still... oh well, you don't get to know folks here, when you do up home. I feel I've got something to say about running Gopher Prairie. But you take it in a big city of two, three hundred thousand and I'm just one flea on the dog's back. And then I like country driving and the hunting in the fall. Do you know Gopher Prairie at all?" No, but I hear it's a very nice town. Nice? Say honestly. Of course, I may be prejudiced, but I've seen an awful lot of towns. One time I went to Atlantic City for the American Medical Association meeting and I spent practically a week in New York but I never saw a town that had such up-and-coming people as Gopher Prairie. Bresnahan, you know, the famous auto manufacturer, he comes from Gopher Prairie. Born and brought up there, and it's a darn pretty town. Lots of fine maples and box-elders, and there's two of the dandiest lakes you ever saw, right near town. And we've got seven miles of cement walks already, and building more every day course, a lot of these towns still put up with plank-walks, but not for us, you bet." Really? Why was she thinking of Stuart Snyder? Gopher Prairie is going to have a great future. Some of the best dairy and wheat land in the state right near there, some of it selling right now at one-fifty an acre, and I bet it will go up to two and a quarter in ten years. Is... do you like your profession?" Nothing like it keeps you out, and yet you have a chance to loaf in the office for a change." I don't mean that way, I mean, it's such an opportunity for sympathy. Dr. Kennicott launched into a heavy, oh, these Dutch farmers don't want sympathy, all they need is a bath and a good dose of salts. Carol must have flinched, for instantly he was urging, what I mean is, I don't want you to think I'm one of these old salts and quinine peddlers, but I mean... So many of my patients are husky farmers that I suppose I get kind of case-hardened. It seems to me that a doctor could transform a whole community, if he wanted to, if he saw it. He's usually the only man in the neighborhood who has any scientific training, isn't he? Yes, that's so, but I guess most of us get rusty. We land in a rut of obstetrics and typhoid and busted legs. What we need is women like you to jump on us it'd be you that would transform the town." No, I couldn't. Too flighty. I did used to think about doing just that, curiously enough, but I seem to have drifted away from the idea. Oh, I'm a fine one to be lecturing you. No, you're just the one. You have ideas, without having lost feminine charm. Say, don't you think there's a lot of these women that go out for all these movements and so on that sacrifice? After his remarks upon suffrage, he abruptly questioned her about herself. His kindliness and the firmness of his personality enveloped her, and she accepted him as one who had a right to know what she thought and wore and ate and read. He was positive. He had grown from a sketched-in stranger to a friend, whose gossip was important news. She noticed the healthy solidity of his chest. His nose, which had seemed irregular and large, was suddenly virile. She was jarred out of this serious sweetness when Marbury bounced over to them and, with horrible publicity, yammered, ''Say, what do you think you two are doing, telling fortunes or making love?'' ''Let me warn you that the doc is a frisky bachelor, Carol. Come on now, folks, shake a leg. Let's have some stunts or a dance or something!'' She did not have another word with Dr. Kennicott until their parting. ''Been a great pleasure to meet you, Miss Milford. May I see you some time when I come down again? I'm here quite often, taking patients to hospitals for majors and so on." Why, what's your address? You can ask Mr. Marbury next time you come down, if you really want to know. Want to know? Say you wait! Two. Of the love-making of Carol and Will Kennicott there is nothing to be told which may not be heard on every summer evening, on every shadowy block. They were biology and mystery, their speech was slang phrases and flares of poetry, their silences were contentment, or shaky crises when his arm took her shoulder. All the beauty of youth, first discovered when it is passing, and all the commonplaceness of a well-to-do unmarried man encountering a pretty girl at the time when she is slightly weary of her employment and sees no glory ahead, nor any man she is glad to serve. They liked each other honestly they were both honest. She was disappointed by his devotion to making money, but she was sure that he did not lie to patients, and that he did keep up with the medical magazines. What aroused her to something more than liking was his boyishness when they went tramping. They walked from St. Paul down the river to Mendota, Kennicott, more elastic-seeming in a cap and a soft crape shirt, Carol youthful in a tam-o'-shanter of mole velvet, a blue serge suit with an absurdly and agreeably broad turn down linen collar, and frivolous ankles above athletic shoes. The high bridge crosses the Mississippi, mounting from low banks to a palisade of cliffs. Far down beneath it, on the St. Paul side, upon mud flats, is a wild settlement of chicken infested gardens and shanties patched together from discarded signboards, sheets of corrugated iron, and planks fished out of the river. Carol leaned over the rail of the bridge to look down at this Yangtze village. In delicious imaginary fear she shrieked that she was dizzy with the height, and it was an extremely human satisfaction to have a strong male snatch her back to safety, instead of having a logical woman teacher or librarian sniff, "'Well, if you're scared, why don't you get away from the rail, then?' From the cliffs across the river Carol and Kennicott looked back at St. Paul on its hills, an imperial sweep from the dome of the cathedral to the dome of the State Capitol. The river road led past rocky field slopes, deep glens, woods flamboyant now with September, to Mendota, white walls and a spire among trees beneath a hill, old world in its placid ease. And for this fresh land the place is ancient. Here is the bold stone house which General Sibley, the king of fur-traders, built in 1835 with plaster of river-mud and ropes of twisted grass for laths. It has an air of centuries. In its solid rooms, Carroll and Kennicott found prints from other days which the house had seen. Tailcoats of robin's egg-blue, clumsy, red-river carts laden with luxurious furs, whiskered Union soldiers in slant forage caps and rattling sabers. It suggested to them a common American past and it was memorable because they had discovered it together. They talked more trustingly, more personally, as they trudged on. They crossed the Minnesota River in a rowboat ferry. They climbed the hill to the round stone tower of Fort Snelling. They saw the junction of the Mississippi and the Minnesota, and recalled the men who had come here eighty years ago. Maine lumbermen, York traders, soldiers from the Maryland hills, It's a good country, and I'm proud of it. Let's make it all that those old boys dreamed about." The unsentimental Kennicott was moved to vow. "'Let's. Come on, come to Gopher Prairie. Show us. Make the town... well, make it artistic. It's mighty pretty, but I'll admit we aren't any too darn artistic. Probably the lumberyard isn't as scrumptious as all these Greek temples. But go to it. Make us change.' I would like to, some day. Now! You'd love gopher prairie! We've been doing a lot with lawns and gardening the past few years, and it's so homey—the big trees and—and the best people on earth—and keen! I bet Luke Dawson—Carol but half listened to the names. She could not fancy their ever becoming important to her. I bet Luke Dawson has got more money than most of the swells on Summit Avenue and Miss Sherwin in the high school is a regular wonder, reads Latin like I do English, and Sam Clark, the hardware man, he's a corker, not a better man in the state to go hunting with. And if you want culture, besides Vita Sherwin, there's Reverend Warren, the Congregational preacher, and Professor Mott, the superintendent of schools, and Guy Pollock, the lawyer, they say he writes regular poetry, and—and and Ramey Weatherspoon. he's not such an awful boob when you get to know him and he sings swell. And—and there's plenty of others. Lime-casts, only, of course, none of them have your finesse, you might call it, but they don't make him any more appreciative and so on. Come on! We're ready for you to boss us." They sat on the bank below the parapet of the old fort, hidden from observation. He circled her shoulder with his arm. Relaxed after the walk, a chill nipping her throat, Conscious of his warmth and power, she leaned gratefully against him. "'You know I'm in love with you, Carol.' She did not answer, but she touched the back of his hand with an exploring finger. "'You say I'm so darn materialistic. How can I help it unless I have you to stir me up?' She did not answer, she could not think. "'You say a doctor could cure a town the way he does a person. Well, you cure the town of whatever ails it, if anything does, and I'll be your surgical kit." She did not follow his words, only the blurring resoluteness of them. She was shocked, thrilled, as he kissed her cheek and cried, "'There's no use saying things and saying things and saying things. Don't my arms talk to you, now?' "'Oh, please, please!' She wondered if she ought to be angry. But it was a drifting thought and she discovered that she was crying. Then they were sitting six inches apart, pretending that they had never been nearer, while she tried to be impersonal. I would like to, would like to see Gopher Prairie. Trust me, here she is, brought some snapshots down to show you. Her cheek near his sleeve she studied a dozen village pictures. They were streaky, she saw only trees, shrubbery, a porch indistinct in leafy shadows. But she exclaimed over the lakes, dark water reflecting wooded bluffs, a flight of ducks, a fisherman in shirt-sleeves and a wide straw hat holding up a string of crappies. One winter picture of the edge of Plover Lake had the air of an etching. Lustrous slide of ice, snow in the crevices of a boggy bank, the mound of a muskrat house, reeds in thin black lines, arches of frosty grasses. It was an impression of cool, clear vigor. "'How'd it be to skate there for a couple of hours, or go zinging along on a fast iceboat and skip back home for coffee and some hot weenies?' he demanded. "'It might be... fun. But here's the picture. Here's where you come in.' A Photograph of a Forest Clearing pathetic new furrows straggling among stumps, a clumsy log cabin chinked with mud and roofed with hay, in front of it a sagging woman with tight-drawn hair, and a baby bedraggled, smeary, glorious-eyed. Those are the kind of folks I practice among good share of the time. Nels Erdstrom, fine, clean young Svenska. He'll have a corking farm in ten years, but now I operated on his wife on a kitchen table, with my driver giving the anesthetic. Look at that scared baby. Need some woman with hands like yours. Waiting for you. Just look at that baby's eyes. Look how he's begging." Don't. They hurt me. Oh, it would be sweet to help him. So sweet." As his arms moved toward her she answered all her doubts with, Sweet. So sweet. End of Chapter Two. Chapter Three of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. One. Under the rolling clouds of the prairie, a moving mass of steel, an irritable clank and rattle beneath a prolonged roar. The sharp scent of oranges cutting the soggy smell of unbathed people and ancient baggage. Towns as planless as a scattering of pasteboard boxes on an attic floor. The stretch of faded gold stubble broken only by clumps of willows encircling white houses and red barns. Number seven, the way train, grumbling through Minnesota, imperceptibly climbing the giant tableland that slopes in a thousand-mile rise from hot Mississippi bottoms to the Rockies. It is September, hot, very dusty. There is no smug pullman attached to the train, and the day-coaches of the East are replaced by free-chair cars, with each seat cut into two adjustable plush chairs, the headrests covered with doubtful linen towels. Halfway down the car is a semi partition of carved oak columns, but the aisle is of bare, splintery, grease blackened wood. There is no porter, no pillows, no provision for beds, but all today and all tonight they will ride in this long steel box farmers with perpetually tired wives and children who seem all to be of the same age, workmen going to new jobs traveling salesmen with derbies and freshly shined shoes. They are parched and cramped, the lines of their hands filled with grime. They go to sleep curled in distorted attitudes, heads against the window-panes, or propped on rolled coats on seat arms, and legs thrust into the aisle. They do not read, apparently they do not think. They wait. An early wrinkled young old mother, moving as though her joints were dry, opens a suitcase in which are seen creased blouses, a pair of slippers worn through at the toes, a bottle of patent medicine, a tin cup, a paper-covered book about dreams which the news-butcher has coaxed her into buying. She brings out a graham-cracker which she feeds to a baby lying flat on a seat and wailing hopelessly. Most of the crumbs drop on the red plush of the seat and the woman sighs and tries to brush them away, but they leap up impishly and fall back on the plush. A soiled man and woman munch sandwiches and throw the crusts on the floor. A large brick-colored Norwegian takes off his shoes, grunts in relief and props his feet in their thick gray socks against the seat in front of him. An old woman whose toothless mouth shuts like a mud turtle's and whose hair is not so much white as yellow like mouldy linen, with bands of pink skull apparent between the tresses, anxiously lifts her bag, opens it, peers in, closes it, puts it under the seat, and hastily picks it up and opens it and hides it all over again. The bag is full of treasures and of memories. A leather buckle, an ancient band concert program, scraps of ribbon, lace, satin. In the aisle beside her is an extremely indignant parakeet in a cage. Two facing seats, overflowing with a Slovene iron-miner's family, are littered with shoes, dolls, whiskey-bottles, bundles wrapped in newspapers, a sewing-bag. The oldest boy takes a mouth-organ out of his coat-pocket, wipes the tobacco-crumbs off, and plays marching through Georgia till every head in the car begins to ache. The news-butcher comes through selling chocolate bars and lemon-drops. A girl-child ceaselessly trots down to the water-cooler and back to her seat. The stiff paper envelope, which she uses for cup, drips in the aisle as she goes, and on each trip she stumbles over the feet of a carpenter who grunts, "'Ouch! Look out!' The dust-cake doors are open, and from the smoking-car drifts back a visible blue line of stinging tobacco-smoke and with it a crackle of laughter over the story which the young man in the bright blue suit and lavender tie and light yellow shoes has just told to the squat man in garage overalls. The smell grows constantly thicker, more stale. Two. To each of the passengers his seat was his temporary home, and most of the passengers were slatternly housekeepers. But one seat looked clean and deceptively cool. In it were an obviously prosperous man and a black-haired, fine-skinned girl whose pumps rested on an immaculate horsehide bag. They were Dr. Will Kennicott and his bride, Carol. They had been married at the end of a year of conversational courtship, and they were on their way to Gopher Prairie after a wedding journey in the Colorado mountains. The hordes of the way-train were not altogether new to Carol. She had seen them on trips from St. Paul to Chicago. But now that they had become her own people, to bathe and encourage and adorn, she had an acute and uncomfortable interest in them. They distressed her. They were so stolid. She had always maintained that there is no American peasantry, and she sought now to defend her faith by seeing imagination and enterprise in the young Swedish farmers, and in a traveling man working over his order blanks. But the older people, Yankees as well as Norwegians, Germans, Finns, Canucks, had settled into submission to poverty. They were peasants, she groaned. Isn't there any way of waking them up? What would happen if they understood scientific agriculture? She begged of Kennicott, her hand groping for his. It had been a transforming honeymoon she had been frightened to discover how tumultuous a feeling could be roused in her. Will had been lordly, stalwart, jolly, impressively competent in making camp. Tender and understanding through the hours when they had lain side by side in a tent pitched among pines high up on a lonely mountain spur. His hand swallowed hers as he started from thoughts of the practice to which he was returning. "'These people? Wake em up?' What for? They're happy." But they're so provincial. No, that isn't what I mean. They're—oh, so sunk in the mud. Look here, Carrie. You want to get over your city idea that because a man's pants aren't pressed he's a fool. These farmers are mighty keen and and up-and-coming. I know. That's what hurts. Life seems so hard for them—these lonely farms and this gritty train. Oh, they don't mind it. Besides, things are changing. The auto, the telephone, rural free delivery. They're bringing the farmers in closer touch with the town. Takes time, you know, to change a wilderness like this was fifty years ago. But already, why, they can hop into the Ford or the Overland and get into the movies on Saturday evening quicker than you could get down to them by trolley in St. Paul." But. If it's these towns we've been passing that the farmers run to for relief from their bleakness, can't you understand? Just look at them!" Kennicott was amazed. Ever since childhood he had seen these towns from trains on this same line. He grumbled. Why, what's the matter with them? Good hustling bergs! It would astonish you to know how much weed and rye and corn and potatoes they ship in a year. But they're so ugly! I'll admit they aren't comfy like gopher prairie, but give em time." What's the use of giving them time unless someone has desire and training enough to plan them? Hundreds of factories trying to make attractive motor-cars, but these towns... left to chance. No, that can't be true. It must have taken genius to make them so scrawny. Oh, they're not so bad," was all he answered. He pretended that his hand was the cat and hers the mouse. For the first time she tolerated him rather than encouraged him. She was staring out at Schoenstrom, a hamlet of perhaps a hundred and fifty inhabitants, at which the train was stopping. A bearded German and his pucker-mouthed wife tugged their enormous imitation-leather satchel from under a seat and waddled out. The station agent hoisted a dead calf aboard the baggage car. There were no other visible activities in Schoenstrom. In the quiet of the halt Carroll could hear a horse kicking his stall, a carpenter shingling a roof. The business center of Schoenstrom took up one side of one block, facing the railroad. It was a row of one-story shops covered with galvanized iron, or with clapboards painted red and bilious yellow. The buildings were as ill-assorted, as temporary-looking, as a mining-camp street in the motion pictures, The railroad station was a one-room frame box, a miry cattle-pen on one side and a crimson weed-elevator on the other. The elevator, with its cupola on the ridge of a shingled roof, resembled a broad-shouldered man with a small, vicious, pointed head. The only habitable structures to be seen were the florid, red-brick Catholic Church and Rectory at the end of Main Street. Carol picked at Kennicott's sleeve you wouldn't call this a not-so-bad town, would you?" These Dutch bergs are kind of slow. Still, at that. See that fellow coming out of the general store there, getting into the big car? I met him once. He owns about half the town, besides the store. Ross Cuckle, his name is. He owns a lot of mortgages and he gambles in farmlands. Good nut on him, that fellow. Why, they say he's worth three or four hundred thousand dollars. Got a dandy, great, big, yellow brick house with tiled walks and a garden and everything Other end of town. Can't see it from here. I've gone past it when I've driven through here. Yes, sir." Then if he has all that, there's no excuse whatever for this place. If his three hundred thousand went back into the town where it belongs, they could burn up these shacks and build a dream village, a jewel. Why do the farmers and the town people let the baron keep it? I must say, I don't quite get you sometimes, Carrie. Let him? They can't help themselves. He's a dumb old Dutchman, and probably the priest can twist him around his finger, but when it comes to picking good farming land he's a regular whiz." I see. He's their symbol of beauty. The town erects him instead of erecting buildings. Honestly, don't know what you're driving at. You're kind of played out after this long trip. You'll feel better when you get home and have a good bath and put on the blue negligee That's some vampire costume, you witch!" He squeezed her arm, looked at her knowingly. They moved on from the desert stillness of the Schoenstrom station. The train creaked, banged, swayed. The air was nauseatingly thick. Kennicott turned her face from the window, rested her head on his shoulder she was coaxed from her unhappy mood. But she came out of it unwillingly, and when Kennicott was satisfied that he had corrected all her worries and had opened a magazine of saffron detective stories, she sat upright. Here, she meditated, is the newest empire of the world, the northern Middle West, a land of dairy herds and exquisite lakes, of new automobiles and tar-paper shanties and silos like red towers. Of clumsy speech and a hope that is boundless. An empire which feeds a quarter of the world, yet its work is merely begun. They are pioneers, these sweaty wayfarers, for all their telephones and bank accounts and automatic pianos and cooperative leagues. And for all its fat richness, theirs is a pioneer land. What is its future, she wondered? A future of cities and factory smut where now are loping empty fields, homes universal and secure, or placid chateau ringed with sullen huts, youth free to find knowledge and laughter, willingness to sift the sanctified lies, or creamy-skinned fat women, smeared with grease and chalk, gorgeous in the skins of beasts and the bloody feathers of slain birds, playing bridge with puffy, pink-nailed jeweled fingers women who, after much expenditure of labor and bad temper, still grotesquely resemble their own flatulent lapdogs. The ancient stale inequalities were something different in history, unlike the tedious maturity of other empires. What future and what hope? Carol's head ached with the riddle. She saw the prairie, flat in giant patches or rolling in long hummocks. The width and bigness of it! which had expanded her spirit an hour ago, began to frighten her. It spread out so, it went on so uncontrollably. She could never know it. Kennicott was closeted in his detective story. With the loneliness which comes most oppressingly in the midst of many people, she tried to forget problems, to look at the prairie objectively. The grass beside the railroad had been burnt over. It was a smudge prickly with charred stalks of weeds. Beyond the undeviating barbed-wire fences were clumps of golden rod. Only this thin hedge shut them off from the plains, shorn wheatlands of autumn, a hundred acres to a field, prickly and gray nearby, but in the blurred distance, like tawny velvet stretched over dipping hillocks. The long rows of wheat shocks marched like soldiers in worn yellow tabards. The newly ploughed fields were black banners fallen on the distant slope. It was a martial immensity, vigorous, a little harsh, unsoftened by kindly gardens. The expanse was relieved by clumps of oaks with patches of short wild grass, and every mile or two was a chain of cobalt sloughs, with the flicker of blackbird's wings across them. All this working land was turned into exuberance by the light. The sunshine was dizzy on open stubble. Shadows from immense cumulus clouds were forever sliding across low mounds, and the sky was wider and loftier and more resolutely blue than the sky of cities, she declared. It's a glorious country, a land to be big in, she crooned. Then Kennicott startled her by chuckling, Do you realize the town after the next is Gopher Prairie? Home. 3. That one word, home, it terrified her. Had she really bound herself to live, inescapably, in this town called Gopher Prairie? And this thick man beside her, who dared to define her future, he was a stranger. She turned in her seat, stared at him. Who was he? Why was he sitting with her? He wasn't of her kind. His neck was heavy. His speech was heavy, he was twelve or thirteen years older than she, and about him was none of the magic of shared adventures and eagerness. She could not believe that she had ever slept in his arms. That was one of the dreams which you had but did not officially admit. She told herself how good he was, how dependable and understanding. She touched his ear, smoothed the plane of his solid jaw, and, turning away again, concentrated upon liking his town. It wouldn't be like these barren settlements, it couldn't be. Why, it had three thousand population! That was a great many people! There would be six hundred houses or more! And the lakes near it would be so lovely! She'd seen them in the photographs! They had looked charming, hadn't they? As the train left Joaquinian she began nervously to watch for the lakes, the entrance to all her future life. But when she discovered them, to the left of the track, her only impression of them was that they resembled the photographs. A mile from Gopher Prairie the track mounts a curving low ridge, and she could see the town as a whole. With a passionate jerk she pushed up the window, looked out, the arched fingers of her left hand trembling on the sill, her right hand at her breast and she saw that Gopher Prairie was merely an enlargement of all the hamlets which they had been passing. Only to the eyes of a Kennecott was it exceptional. The huddled low wooden houses broke the plains scarcely more than would a hazel thicket. The field swept up to it, past it. It was unprotected and unprotecting. There was no dignity in it, nor any hope of greatness. Only the tall red-grain elevator and a few tinny church-steeples rose from the mass. It was a frontier camp. It was not a place to live in, not possibly, not conceivably. The people—they'd be as drab as their houses, as flat as their fields. She couldn't stay here. She would have to wrench loose from this man and flee. She peeped at him. She was at once helpless before his mature fixity, and touched by his excitement, as he sent his magazines skittering along the aisle, stooped for their bags, came up with flushed face and gloated. "'Here we are!' She smiled loyally and looked away. The train was entering town, the houses on the outskirts were dusky old red mansions with wooden frills, or gaunt frame shelters like grocery boxes were new bungalows with concrete foundations imitating stone. Now the train was passing the elevator, the grim storage-tanks for oil, a creamery, a lumber-yard, a stockyard, muddy and trampled and stinking. Now they were stopping at a squat red-frame station, the platform crowded with unshaven farmers and with loafers, unadventurous people with dead eyes. She was here. She could not go on. It was the end, the end of the world. She sat with closed eyes, longing to push past Kennicott, hide somewhere in the train, flee on toward the Pacific. Something large arose in her soul and commanded, "'Stop it, stop being a whining baby!' She stood up quickly, she said, "'Isn't it wonderful to be here at last?' He trusted her so. She would make herself like the place. And she was going to do tremendous things. She followed Kennicott and the bobbing ends of the two bags which he carried. They were held back by the slow line of disembarking passengers. She reminded herself that she was actually at the dramatic moment of the bride's homecoming. She ought to feel exalted. She felt nothing at all except irritation at their slow progress toward the door. Kennicott stooped to peer through the windows. He shyly exulted. Look, look, there's a bunch come down to welcome us. Sam Clark and the missus, and Dave Dyer and Jack Elder, and yes, sir, Harry Haydock and Juanita, and a whole crowd. I guess they see us now." Yeah, yeah, sure, they see us. See him waving?" She obediently bent her head to look out at them. She had hold of herself. She was ready to love them. But she was embarrassed by the heartiness of the cheering group. From the vestibule she waved to them, but she clung a second to the sleeve of the brakeman, who helped her down before she had the courage to dive into the cataract of hand-shaking people, people whom she could not tell apart. She had the impression that all the men had coarse voices, large damp hands, toothbrush mustaches, bald spots, and Masonic watch charms. She knew that they were welcoming her. Their hands, their smiles, their shouts, Their affectionate eyes overcame her. She stammered, thank you, oh, thank you! One of the men was clamoring at Kennicott. I brought my machine down to take you home, Doc! Fine business, Sam, cried Kennicott, and to Carol, let's jump in! That big page over there! Some boat, too, believe me! Sam can show speed to any of these marmons from Minneapolis! Only when she was in the motor-car did she distinguish the three people who were to accompany them. The owner, now at the wheel, was the essence of decent self-satisfaction. A baldish, largish, level-eyed man, rugged of neck but sleek and round of face. Face like the back of a spoon-bowl. He was chuckling at her. "'Have you got us all straight yet?' "'Course she has. Trust Carrie to get things straight and get em darn quick.' I bet she could tell you every date in history," boasted her husband. But the man looked at her reassuringly, and with a certainty that he was a person whom she could trust, she confessed, ''As a matter of fact, I haven't got anybody straight.'' ''Course you haven't, child. Well I'm Sam Clark, dealer in hardware, sporting goods, cream separators, and almost any kind of heavy junk you can think of. You can call me Sam anyway, I'm going to call you Carrie, seeing as you've been and gone and married this poor fish of a bum medic that we keep round here." Carol smiled lavishly, and wished that she called people by their given names more easily. The fat, cranky lady back there beside you, who is pretending that she can't hear me giving her away, is Mrs. Samuel Clark, and this hungry-looking squirt up here beside me is Dave Dyer, who keeps his drug store running by not filling your hubby's prescriptions right. fact, you might say he's the guy that put the Shun in prescription. So, well, leave us take the Bonnie Bride home. Say, Doc, I'll sell you the Canterson place for three thousand plunks. Better be thinking about building a new home for Carrie. Prettiest Frau in G.P., if you asks me." Contentedly Sam Clark drove off, in the heavy traffic of three Fords and the Minamashi House Free Bus. I shall like Mr. Clark. I can't call him Sam, they're all so friendly." She glanced at the houses, tried not to see what she saw, gave way in. Why do these stories lie so? They always make the bride's homecoming a bower of roses. Complete trust in noble spouse. Lies about marriage. I'm not changed. And this town, oh my God, I can't go through with it! This junk heap! Her husband bent over her. "'You look like you were in a brown study. Scared? I don't expect you to think Gopher Prairie is a paradise, after St. Paul. I don't expect you to be crazy about it at first. But you'll come to like it so much. Life's so free here, and best people on earth!' She whispered to him, while Mrs. Clark considerately turned away, "'I love you for understanding. I'm just—' I'm beastly oversensitive, Too many books. It's my lack of shoulder-muscles and sense. Give me time, dear. You bet. All the time you want." She laid the back of his hand against her cheek, snuggled near him. She was ready for her new home. Kennicott had told her that, with his widowed mother as housekeeper, he had occupied an old house. But nice and roomy, and well heated, best furnace I could find on the market. His mother had left Carol her love and gone back to Lacquemurre. It would be wonderful, she exulted, not to have to live in other people's houses, but to make her own shrine. She held his hand tightly and stared ahead as the car swung round a corner and stopped in the street before a prosaic frame house in a small parched lawn. Four. A concrete sidewalk with a parking of grass and mud a square smug brown house rather damp, a narrow concrete walk up to it, sickly yellow leaves in a window with dried wings of box elder seeds and snags of wool from the cottonwoods, a screened porch with pillars of thin painted pine surmounted by scrolls and brackets and bumps of jigsawed wood, no shrubbery to shut off the public gaze, a lugubrious bay window to the right of the porch window-curtains of starched cheap lace revealing a pink marble table with a conch-shell and a family Bible. You'll find it old-fashioned, what do you call it, mid-Victorian. I left it as is, so you could make any changes you felt were necessary." Kennicott sounded doubtful for the first time since he had come back to his own. It's a real home. She was moved by his humility. She gaily motioned good-bye to the clerks. He unlocked the door. He was leaving the choice of a maid to her, and there was no one in the house. She jiggled while he turned the key and scampered in. It was next day before either of them remembered that in their honeymoon camp they had planned that he should carry her over the sill. In hallway and front parlour she was conscious of dinginess and lugubriousness and airlessness, but she insisted, I'll make it all jolly. As she followed Kennicott and the bags up to their bedroom, she quavered to herself the song of the fat little gods of the hearth. "'I have my own home, to do what I please with, to do what I please with, my den for me and my mate and my cubs, my own.' She was close in her husband's arms. She clung to him. Whatever of strangeness and slowness and insularity she might find in him, None of that mattered so long as she could slip her hands beneath his coat, run her fingers over the warm smoothness of the satin back of his waistcoat, seem almost to creep into his body, find in him strength, find in the courage and kindness of her man a shelter from the perplexing world. "'Sweet, so sweet!' she whispered. End of chapter 3 Chapter Four of Main Street, by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, One. The Clerks have invited some folks to their house to meet us tonight," said Kennicott as he unpacked his suitcase. "Oh, that is nice of them. You bet. I told you you'd like 'em. Square as people on earth. Um, Carrie." Would you mind if I sneaked down to the office for an hour, just to see how things are?" "'Why, no, of course not. I know you've been keen to get back to work.' "'Sure you don't mind?' "'Not a bit. Out of my way. Let me unpack.' But the advocate of freedom in marriage was as much disappointed as a drooping bride at the alacrity with which he took that freedom and escaped to the world of men's affairs. She gazed about their bedroom, and its full dismalness crawled over her. The awkward knuckly L-shape of it. The black walnut bed with apples and spotty pears carved on the headboard. The imitation maple bureau, with pink-daubed scent-bottles and a petticoated pincushion on a marble slab uncomfortably like a gravestone. The plain pine washstand and the garlanded water-pitcher and bowl. The scent was of horsehair and plush and Florida water. How could people ever live with things like this?" she shuddered. She saw the furniture as a circle of elderly judges, condemning her to death by smothering. The tottering brocade chair squeaked, "'Choke her! Choke her! Smother her!' The old linen smelled of the tomb. She was alone in this house, this strange still house, among the shadows of dead thoughts and haunting repressions. "'I hate it! I hate it!' She panted. Why did I ever... She remembered that Kennicott's mother had brought these family relics from the old home in Lacquemure. Stop it! They're perfectly comfortable things. They're... comfortable. Besides... Oh, they're horrible! We'll change them right away. Then... But of course he has to see how things are at the office she made a pretense of busying herself with unpacking. The chintz-lined, silver-fitted bag, which had seemed so desirable a luxury in St. Paul, was an extravagant vanity here. The daring black chemise of frail chiffon and lace was a hussy at which the deep-bosomed bed stiffened in disgust, and she hurled it into a bureau drawer, hid it beneath a sensible linen blouse. She gave up unpacking she went to the window with a purely literary thought of village charm, hollyhocks and lanes and apple-cheeked cottagers. What she saw was the site of the Seventh-day Adventist church, a plain clabbered wall of a sour liver-color, the ash pile back of the church, an unpainted stable, and an alley in which a four-delivery wagon had been stranded. This was the terraced garden below her boudoir, this was to be her scenery for... I mustn't, I mustn't! I'm nervous this afternoon. Am I sick? Good Lord, I hope it isn't that! Not now! How people lie! How these stories lie! They say the bride is always so blushing and proud and happy when she finds that out, but... I'd hate it! I'd be scared to death! Some day, but... Please, dear nebulous lord, not now! Bearded sniffy old men sitting and demanding that we bear children! If they had to bear them, I wish they did have to! Not now! Not till I've got hold of this job of liking the ash-pile out there! I must shut up. I'm mildly insane. I'm going out for a walk. I'll see the town by myself my first view of the empire I'm going to conquer." She fled from the house. She stared with seriousness at every concrete crossing, every hitching-post, every rake for leaves, and to each house she devoted all her speculation. What would they come to mean? How would they look six months from now? In which of them would she be dining? Which of these people whom she passed? now mere arrangements of hair and clothes, were turned into intimates, loved or dreaded, different from all the other people in the world. As she came into the small business section she inspected a broad-beamed grocer in an alpaca coat, who was bending over the apples and celery on a slanted platform in front of his store. Would she ever talk to him? What would he say if she stopped and stated, "'I am Mrs. Dr. Kennicott.' Some day I hope to confide that a heap of extremely dubious pumpkins as a window display doesn't exhilarate me much." The grocer was Mr. Frederick F. Lutlmeyer, whose market is at the corner of Main Street and Lincoln Avenue. In supposing that only she was observant, Carol was ignorant, misled by the indifference of cities. She fancied that she was slipping through the streets invisible, but when she had passed, Mr. Lutlmeyer puffed into the store and coughed at his clerk, I seen a young woman, she come along de Side Street. I bet she is Stock Kennicott's new bride. Good looker, nice legs, but she wore a hell of a plain suit. No style. I wonder she pay cash. I bet she go to Howland and Goulds more as she does here. What you done with the poster for fluffed oats?" Two. When Carol had walked for thirty-two minutes she had completely covered the town east and west, north and south, and she stood at the corner of Main Street and Washington Avenue and despaired. Main Street, with its two-story brick shops, its story-and-a-half wooden residences, its muddy expanse from concrete walk to walk, its huddle of fords and lumber-wagons, was too small to absorb her. The broad, straight, unenticing gashes of the streets led in the grasping prairie on every side she realized the vastness and the emptiness of the land. The skeleton iron windmill on the farm a few blocks away, at the north end of Main Street, was like the ribs of a dead cow. She thought of the coming of the northern winter, when the unprotected houses would crouch together in terror of storms galloping out of that wild waste. They were so small and weak, the little brown houses. They were shelters for sparrows, not homes for warm laughing people. She told herself that down the street the leaves were a splendor, the maples were orange, the oaks a solid tint of raspberry, and the lawns had been nursed with love. But the thought would not hold. At best the trees resembled a thinned woodlot. There was no park to rest the eyes. And since not Gopher Prairie, but Cayman was the county seat, there was no courthouse with its grounds. She glanced through the fly-specked windows of the most pretentious building in sight, the one place which welcomed strangers and determined their opinion of the charm and luxury of Gopher Prairie, the Minnie mashe House. It was a tall, lean, shabby structure, three stories of yellow-streaked wood, the corners covered with sanded pine slabs purporting to symbolize stone. In the hotel office she could see a stretch of bare, unclean floor. A line of rickety chairs with brass cuspidors between. A writing-desk with advertisements in mother-of-pearl letters upon the glass-covered back. The dining-room beyond was a jungle of stained tablecloths and catsup bottles. She looked no more at the mini-mashy house. A man in cuffless shirt-sleeves with pink arm-garters, wearing a linen collar but no tie, yawned his way from Dyer's Drug Store across to the hotel. He leaned against the wall, scratched a while, sighed, and, in a bored way, gossiped with a man tilted back in a chair. A lumber wagon, its long green box filled with large spools of barbed-wire fencing, creaked down the block. A Ford, in reverse, sounded as though it were shaking to pieces, then recovered and rattled away. In the Greek candy store was the wine of a peanut roaster and the oily smell of nuts. There was no other sound nor sign of life. She wanted to run, fleeing from the encroaching prairie, demanding the security of a great city. Her dreams of creating a beautiful town were ludicrous. Oozing out from every drab wall she felt a forbidding spirit which she could never conquer. She trailed down the street on one side, back on the other, glancing into the cross-streets. It was a private seeing Main Street tour. She was within ten minutes beholding not only the heart of a place called Gopher Prairie, but ten thousand towns from Albany to San Diego. Dyer's Drug Store, a corner building of regular and unreal blocks of artificial stone. Inside the store a greasy marble soda fountain with an electric lamp of red and green and curdled yellow mosaic shade. Pawed over heaps of toothbrushes and combs and packages of shaving soap shelves of soap-cartons, teething-rings, garden-seeds, and patent-medicines in yellow packaged nostrums for consumption, for women's diseases, notorious mixtures of opium and alcohol, in the very shop to which her husband sent patients for the filling of prescriptions. From a second-story window the sign, W. P. Kennicott, Physician and Surgeon, Gilton on Black Sand, a small wooden motion-picture theatre called the Rosebud Movie Palace. Lithographs announcing a film called Fatty in Love. Howland and Gold's Grocery. In the display window, black, overripe bananas and lettuce on which a cat was sleeping. Shelves lined with red crepe-paper, which was now faded and torn and concentrically spotted. Flat against the wall of the second story, the signs of lodges. The Knights of Pythias, the Maccabees, the Woodmen, the Masons. Dahl and Oleson's Meat Market. A reek of blood, a jewelry shop with tinny-looking wristwatches for women in front of it at the curb, a huge wooden clock which did not go, a fly buzzing saloon with a brilliant gold and enamel whiskey sign across the front, other saloons down the block, from them, a stink of stale beer and thick voices bellowing pigeon German or trolling out dirty songs. Vice gone feeble and unenterprising and dull, the delicacy of a mining camp minus its vigor. In front of the saloons, farm wives sitting on the seats of wagons, waiting for their husbands to become drunk and ready to start home. A tobacco shop called The Smokehouse, filled with young men shaking dice for cigarettes. Racks of magazines and pictures of coy fat prostitutes in striped bathing suits. A clothing store with a display of oxblood-shade oxfords with bulldog toes. Suits which looked worn and glossless while they were still new, flabbily draped on dummies like corpses with painted cheeks. The Bon Ton store, Hayden and Simon's, the largest shop in town. The first storey front of clear glass, the plates cleverly bounded the edges with brass. The second storey of pleasant tapestry brick. One window of excellent clothes for men, interspersed with collars of floral peak which showed mauve daisies on a saffron ground. Newness and an obvious notion of neatness and service. Haydock and Simons. Haydock. She had met a Haydock at the station. Harry Haydock, an active person of thirty-five. He seemed great to her now and very like a saint. His shop was clean. Axel Eggie's General Store, frequented by Scandinavian farmers. In the shallow dark window-space heaps of sleazy sateens, badly woven galatias, canvas shoes designed for women with bulging ankles, steel and red glass buttons upon cards with broken edges, a cottony blanket, a granite-ware frying-pan reposing on a sun-faded crepe blouse. Sam Clark's Hardware Store an air of frankly metallic enterprise guns and churns and barrels of nails and beautiful shiny butcher knives. Chester Dashaway's house furnishing emporium. A vista of heavy oak rockers with leather seats, asleep in a dismal row. Billy's lunch. Thick, handleless cups on the wet oilcloth covered counter. An odor of onions and the smoke of hot lard. In the doorway a young man audibly sucking a toothpick. The warehouse of the buyer of cream and potatoes. The sour smell of a dairy. The Ford garage and the Buick garage, competent one-story brick and cement buildings opposite each other. Old and new cars on grease-blackened concrete floors. Tire advertisements. The roaring of a tested motor. A racket which beat at the nerves surly young men in khaki Union overalls, the most energetic and vital places in town. A large warehouse for agricultural implements. An impressive barricade of green and gold wheels, of shafts and sulky seats, belonging to machinery of which Carol knew nothing. Potato planters, manure spreaders, silage cutters, disc harrows, breaking plows. A feed store, its windows opaque with the dust of bran, a patent medicine advertisement painted on its roof. E. Art Shop. Proprietor, Mrs. Mary Ellen Wilkes, Christian Science Library, open daily free. A touching fumble at beauty. A one-room shanty of boards recently covered with rough stucco. A show-window delicately rich in error. Vases starting out to imitate tree-trunks but running off into blobs of gilt. An aluminum ash tray labeled greetings from Gopher Prairie, a Christian science magazine, a stamped sofa-cushion portraying a large ribbon tied to a small poppy, the correct skeins of embroidery silk lying on the pillow, inside the shop a glimpse of bad carbon prints of bad and famous pictures, shelves of phonograph records and camera-films, wooden toys, and in the midst an anxious small woman sitting in a padded rocking-chair a barber-shop and pool-room, a man in shirt-sleeves, presumably Del Snaflin the proprietor, shaving a man who had a large Adam's apple, Nat Hicks's tailor-shop, on a side street off Main, a one-story building, a fashion-plate showing human pitchforks in garments which looked as hard as steel plate, on another side street a raw, red-brick Catholic church with a varnished yellow door, The Post Office. Merely a partition of glass and brass shutting off the rear of a mildewed room which must once have been a shop. A tilted writing shelf against a wall rubbed black and scattered with official notices and Army recruiting posters. The damp, yellow-brick school building in its cindery grounds. The State Bank, stucco-masking wood. The Farmer's National Bank. An Ionic temple of marble pure, exquisite, solitary. A brass plate with Ezra Stobody, President. A score of similar shops and establishments. Behind them, and mixed with them, the houses, meek cottages or large, comfortable, soundly uninteresting symbols of prosperity. In all the town not one building save the ionic bank which gave pleasure to Carol's eyes. Not a dozen buildings which suggested that, in the fifty years of Gopher Prairie's existence, the citizens had realized that it was either desirable or possible to make this, their common home, amusing or attractive. It was not only the unsparing, unapologetic ugliness and the rigid straightness which overwhelmed her. It was the planlessness, the flimsy temporariness of the buildings, their faded, unpleasant colors. The street was cluttered with electric light poles, telephone poles, gasoline pumps for motor-cars, boxes of goods. Each man had built with the most valiant disregard of all the others. Between a large new block of two-story brick shops on one side and the fire-brick overland garage on the other side was a one-story cottage turned into a millinery shop. The white temple of the farmer's bank was elbowed back by a grocery of glaring yellow brick one store building had a patchy galvanized iron cornice. The building beside it was crowned with battlements and pyramids of brick capped with blocks of red sandstone. She escaped from Main Street, fled home. She wouldn't have cared, she insisted, if the people had been comely. She had noted a young man loafing before a shop, one unwashed hand holding the cord of an awning a middle-aged man who had a way of staring at women as though he had been married too long and too prosaically. An old farmer, solid, wholesome, but not clean. His face like a potato fresh from the earth. None of them had shaved for three days. "'If they can't build shrines out here on the prairie, surely there's nothing to prevent their buying safety razors!' she raged. She fought herself. "'I must be wrong. People do live here, it can't be as ugly as... as I know it is. I must be wrong. But I can't do it. I can't go through with it." She came home too seriously worried for hysteria, and when she found Kennicott waiting for her and exulting, "'Have a walk. Well, like the town. Great lawns and trees, eh?' She was able to say, with a self-protective maturity new to her, It's very interesting." Three. The train which brought Carol to Gopher Prairie also brought Miss B. Sorensen. Miss B. was a stalwart, corn-colored, laughing young woman, and she was bored by farm work. She desired the excitements of city life, and the way to enjoy city life was, she had decided, to go get a job as a hired girl in Gopher Prairie. She contentedly lugged her pasteboard telescope from the station to her cousin, Tina Momquist, maid of all work in the residence of Mrs. Luke Dawson. Well, so you come to town,' said Tina. "'Ja, yeah, I get a job,' said B. Well, you got a feller now?' "'Ja, yeah, Jim Jacobson.' Well, I'm glad to see you. How much you want a week?' Six dollar. "'There ain't nobody pay dat.' Wait, Dr. Kennicott, I think he marry a girl from de cities. Maybe she pay dat. Well, you go take a walk. Ya, yeah, said B." So it chanced that Carol Kennicott and B. Sorensen were viewing Main Street at the same time. B. had never before been in a town larger than Scandia Crossing, which has sixty-seven inhabitants. As she marched up the street, she was meditating that it didn't hardly seem like it was possible there could be so many folks all in one place at the same time. My, it would take years to get acquainted with them all! And swell people, too! A fine big gentleman in a new pink shirt with a diamond, and not no washed-out blue denim working-shirt! A lovely lady in a longery dress—but it must be an awful hard dress to wash! And the stores! Not just three of them, like there were at Scandia Crossing, but more than four whole blocks. The Bonton store, big as four barns—my, it would simply scare a person to go in there, with seven or eight clerks all looking at you—and the men's suits, on figures just like human. And Axel Eggies, like home, lots of Swedes and Norskas in there, and a card of dandy buttons, like rubies a drug store with a soda fountain that was just huge, awful long and all lovely marble, and on it there was a great big lamp with the biggest shade you ever saw, all different kinds of colored glass stuck together, and the soda spouts, they were silver and they came right out of the bottom of the lampstand. Behind the fountain there were glass shelves and bottles of new kinds of soft drinks that nobody ever heard of. Suppose a fella took you there! A hotel, awful high, higher than Oscar Tollefson's new red barn. Three stories, one right on top of another. You had to stick your head back to look clear up to the top. There was a swell traveling man in there. Probably been to Chicago, lots of times. Oh, the dandiest people to know here! There was a lady going by, you wouldn't hardly say she was any older than B herself. She wore a dandy new gray suit and black pumps she almost looked like she was looking over the town too but you couldn't tell what she thought b would like to be that way kind of quiet so nobody would get fresh kind of oh elegant a lutheran church here in the city there'd be lovely sermons and church twice on sunday every sunday and a movie show a regular theater just for movies with the sign change of bill every evening, pictures every evening. There are movies in Scandia Crossing, but only once every two weeks, and it took the Sorensons an hour to drive in, Papa was such a tightwad he wouldn't get a Ford, but here she could put on her hat any evening and in three minutes' walk be to the movies, and see lovely fellows in dress-suits and Bill Hart and everything. How could they have so many stores? Why, there was one just for tobacco alone, and one, a lovely one, the art shoppy it was, for pictures and vases and stuff, with oh the dandiest vase made so it looked just like a tree trunk." B stood on the corner of Main Street and Washington Avenue. The roar of the city began to frighten her. There were five automobiles on the street all at the same time, and one of them was a great big car that must have cost two thousand dollars and the bus was starting for a train with five elegant dressed fellows, and a man was pasting up red bills with lovely pictures of washing-machines on them, and the jeweller was laying out bracelets and wristwatches and everything on real velvet. What did she care if she got six dollars a week? Or two? It was worth while working for nothing to be allowed to stay here. And think how it would be in the evening, all lighted up, and not with no lamps, but with electrics! and maybe a gentleman friend taking you to the movies and buying you a strawberry ice cream soda." B trudged back. Well, you like it?' said Tina. Ya, yeah, I like it. I tink maybe I stay here,' said B." Four. The recently built house of Sam Clark, in which was given the party to welcome Carol, was one of the largest in Gopher Prairie. It had a clean sweep of clapboards, a solid squareness, a small tower, and a large screened porch. Inside it was as shiny, as hard, and as cheerful as a new oak-upright piano. Carol looked imploringly at Sam Clark as he rolled to the door and shouted, "'Welcome, little lady! The keys of the city are yourn!' Beyond him, in the hallway and the living-room, sitting in a vast prim circle, as though they were attending a funeral, she saw the guests. They were waiting so. They were waiting for her. The determination to be all one pretty flowerlet of appreciation leaked away. She begged of Sam. I don't dare face them. They expect so much. They'll swallow me in one mouthful. Glump! Like that. Why, sister? They're going to love you! Same as I would if I didn't think the Doc here would beat me up!" But—but—I don't dare! Faces to the right of me, faces in front of me, volley and wonder— She sounded hysterical to herself. She fancied that to Sam Clark she sounded insane. But he chuckled. Now you just cuddle under Sam's wing, and if anybody rubbers at you too long, I'll shoo him off. Here we go watch my smoke! Sammo, the lady's delight and the bridegroom's terror!" His arm about her he led her in and bawled, "'Ladies and -er worser-halves, the bride! We won't introduce her round yet, because she'll never get your bum name straight anyway. Now bust up this star-chamber!' They tittered politely, but they did not move from the social security of their circle, and they did not cease staring. Carol had given creative energy to dressing for the event. Her hair was demure, low on her forehead, with a parting and a coiled braid. Now she wished that she had piled it high. Her frock was an ingenue slip of lawn, with a wide gold sash and a low square neck, which gave a suggestion of throat and moulded shoulders. But as they looked her over she was certain that it was all wrong. She wished alternately that she had worn a spinsterish high-neck dress, and that she had dared to shock them with a violent brick-red scarf which she had bought in Chicago. She was led about the circle. Her voice mechanically produced safe remarks. Oh, I'm sure I'm going to like it here ever so much, and yes, we did have the best time in Colorado, mountains, and yes, I lived in St. Paul several years. Euclid P. Tinker, no, I don't remember meeting him, but I'm pretty sure I've heard of him." Kennicott took her aside and whispered, "'Now I'll introduce you to them one at a time. Tell me about them first. "'Well, the nice-looking couple over there are Harry Haydock and his wife Juanita. Harry's dad owns most of the bonton, but it's Harry who runs it and gives it the pep. He's a hustler. Next to him is Dave Dyer, the druggist you met him this afternoon, mighty good duck shot. The tall husk beyond him is Jack Elder, Jackson Elder, owns the Planey Mill, and the minnie Mashy House, and quite a share in the Farmer's National Bank. Him and his wife are good sports. Him and Sam and I go hunting together a lot. The old cheese there is Luke Dawson, the richest man in town. Next to him is Nat Hicks, the tailor." Really, a tailor? Sure, why not? Maybe we're slow, but we are democratic. I go hunting with Nat same as I do with Jack Elder. I'm glad. I've never met a tailor socially. It must be charming to meet one and not have to think about what you owe him. And do you... Would you go hunting with your barber too? No, but... No use running this democracy thing into the ground. Besides, I've known Nat for years. And besides, he's a mighty good shot, and that's the way it is, see? Next to Nat is Chet Dashaway. Great fellow for chinning. He'll talk your arm off about religion or politics or books or anything.' Carol gazed with a polite approximation to interest at Mr. Dashaway, a tan person with a wide mouth. "'Oh, I know. He's the furniture-store man.' She was much pleased with herself. Yep, and he's the undertaker. You'll like him. Come shake hands with him. Oh, no, no! He doesn't—he doesn't do the embalming and all that—himself. I couldn't shake hands with an undertaker. Why not? You'd be proud to shake hands with a great surgeon, just after he'd been carving up people's bellies." She sought to regain her afternoon's calm of maturity. Yes, you're right. I want—Oh, my dear, do you know how much I want to like the people you like? I want to see people as they are. Well, don't forget to see people as other folks see them, as they are. They have the stuff. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here? Born and brought up here." Bresnahan? Yes, you know. President of the Velvet Motor Company of Boston, Mass. Make the Velvet Twelve. Biggest automobile factory in New England. I think I've heard of him. Sure you have. Why, he's a millionaire several times over. Well. Purse comes back here for the black-bass fishing almost every summer, and he says if he could get away from business he'd rather live here than in Boston or New York or any of those places. He doesn't mind Chet's undertaking." Please. I'll... I'll like everybody. I'll be the community sunbeam." He led her to the Dawsons. Luke Dawson, lender of money on mortgages, owner of Northern cutover land was a hesitant man in unpressed soft gray clothes, with bulging eyes in a milky face. His wife had bleached cheeks, bleached hair, bleached voice, and a bleached manner. She wore her expensive green frock, with its passymentry bosom, bead tassels and gaps between the buttons down the back, as though she had bought it second hand and was afraid of meeting the former owner. They were shy. It was Professor George Edwin Mott, Superintendent of Schools, a Chinese-Mandarin turned brown, who held Carol's hand and made her welcome. When the Dawsons and Mr. Mott had stated that they were pleased to meet her, there seemed to be nothing else to say, but the conversation went on automatically. "'Do you like Gopher Prairie?' whimpered Mrs. Dawson. "'Oh, I'm sure I'm going to be ever so happy.' "'There's so many nice people.' Mrs. Dawson looked to Mr. Mott for social and intellectual aid. He lectured, "'There's a fine class of people. I don't like some of these retired farmers who come here to spend their last days, especially the Germans. They hate to pay school taxes. They hate to spend a cent. But the rest are a fine class of people. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here? Used to go to school right at the old building.' I heard he did. Yes, he's a prince. He and I went fishing together, last time he was here." The Dawsons and Mr. Mott teetered upon weary feet and smiled at Carol with crystallized expressions. She went on, "'Tell me, Mr. Mott, have you ever tried any experiments with any of the new educational systems? The modern kindergarten methods, or the Gary system?' "'Oh, those!' Most of these would-be reformers are simply notoriety-seekers. I believe in manual training, but Latin and mathematics always will be the backbone of sound Americanism, no matter what these fattists advocate. Heaven knows what they do want. Knitting, I suppose, and classes in wiggling the ears." The Dawson's smiled their appreciation of listening to a savant. Carol waited till Kennicott should rescue her. The rest of the party waited for the miracle of being amused. Harry and Juanita Haydock, Rita Simons, and Dr. Terry Gould, the young smart set of Gopher Prairie. She was led to them. Juanita Haydock flung at her in a high, cackling, friendly voice Well, this is so nice to have you here. We'll have some good parties, dances, and everything. You'll have to join the jolly seventeen. We play bridge and we have a supper once a month. You play, of course." No, I don't. Really? In St. Paul? I've always been such a bookworm. We'll have to teach you. Bridge is half the fun of life." Juanita had become patronizing, and she glanced disrespectfully at Carol's golden sash, which she had previously admired. Harry Haydock said politely, How do you think you're going to like the old burg?" I'm sure I shall like it tremendously. Best people on earth here. Great hustlers, too. Course, I've had lots of chances to go live in Minneapolis, but we like it here. Real he-town. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here?" Carol perceived that she had been weakened in the biological struggle by disclosing her lack of bridge. Roused to nervous desire to regain her position, she turned on Dr. Terry Gould, the young and pool-playing competitor of her husband. Her eyes coquetted with him, while she gushed, "'I'll learn, Bridge. But what I really love most is the outdoors. Can't we all get up a boating-party and fish, or whatever you do, and have a picnic supper afterwards?' "'Now you're talking,' Dr. Gould affirmed. He looked rather too obviously at the cream-smooth slope of her shoulder. Like fishing? Fishing is my middle name. I'll teach you, Bridge. Like cards at all? I used to be rather good at bezique. She knew that bezique was a game of cards, or a game of something else, roulette possibly, but her lie was a triumph, Nita's handsome, high-collared, horsey face showed doubt. Harry stroked his nose and said humbly, Basique, Used to be great gambling game, wasn't it?" While others drifted to her group, Carol snatched up the conversation. She laughed and was frivolous and rather brittle. She could not distinguish their eyes. They were a blurry, theater audience before which she self-consciously enacted the comedy of being the clever little bride of Doc Kennicott. "'These here celebrated open spaces, that's what I'm going out for. I'll never read anything but the sporting page again.' will converted me on our Colorado trip. There were so many mousy tourists who were afraid to get out of the motor-bus that I decided to be Annie Oakley, the wild western vampire, and I bought, oh, a vociferous skirt which revealed my perfectly nice ankles to the Presbyterian glare of all the Iowa schoolmams, and I leaped from peak to peak like a nimble chamois, and—you may think that Herr Dr. Kennicott is a nimrod, but you ought to have seen me daring him to strip to his BVDs and go swimming in an icy mountain brook. She knew that they were thinking of becoming shocked, but Juanita Haydock was admiring at least. She swaggered on. I'm sure I'm going to ruin will as a respectable practitioner. Is he a good doctor, Dr. Gould? Kennicott's rival gasped at this insult to professional ethics, and he took an appreciable second before he recovered his social manner. I'll tell you, Mrs. Kennicott," he smiled at Kennicott, to imply that whatever he might say in the stress of being witty was not to count against him in the commercial medical warfare. There's some people in town that say the doc is a fair de Midland diagnostician and prescription writer, but let me whisper this to you, but for heaven's sake don't tell him I said so, don't you ever go to him for anything more serious than a pendectomy of the left ear or a strabismus of the cardiograph. No one save Kennicott knew exactly what this meant, but they laughed, and Sam Clark's party assumed a glittering lemon-yellow color of brocade panels and champagne and tulle and crystal chandeliers and sporting duchesses. Carol saw that George Edwin Mott and the blanched Mr. and Mrs. Dawson were not yet hypnotized. They looked as though they wondered whether they ought to look as though they disapproved. She concentrated on them. But I know whom I wouldn't have dared to go to Colorado with Mr. Dawson there. I'm sure he's a regular heartbreaker. When we were introduced, he held my hand and squeezed it frightfully. Ho-ho-ho! The entire company applauded. Mr. Dawson was beatified. He had been called many things: lone shark, skinflint, tightwad, pussyfoot, but he had never before been called a flirt. He is wicked, isn't he, Mrs. Dawson? Don't you have to lock him up?" Oh, no, but maybe I better, attempted Mrs. Dawson, a tint on her pallid face. For fifteen minutes Carol kept it up. She asserted that she was going to stage a musical comedy, that she preferred café parfait to beefsteak, that she hoped Dr. Kennicott would never lose his ability to make love to charming women, and that she had a pair of gold stockings. They gaped for more. But she could not keep it up. She retired to a chair behind Sam Clark's bulk. The smile wrinkled solemnly flattened out in the faces of all the other collaborators in having a party, and again they stood about hoping but not expecting to be amused. Carol listened. She discovered that conversation did not exist in Gopher Prairie. Even at this affair, which brought out the young smart set, the hunting squire set, the respectable intellectual set and the solid financial set, they sat up with gaiety as with a corpse. Juanita Haydock talked a good deal in her rattling voice, but it was invariably of personalities. The rumor that Ramy Weatherspoon was going to send for a pair of patent leather shoes with gray button-tops, the rheumatism of Champ Perry, the state of Guy Pollock's grip, and the dementia of Jim Howland in painting his fence salmon pink. Sam Clark had been talking to Carol about motor-cars, but he felt his duties as host. While he droned his brows popped up and down. He interrupted himself. "'Must stir em up!' He worried at his wife. "'Don't you think I better stir him up?' He shouldered into the center of the room and cried, "'Let's have some stunts, folks!' "'Yes, let's!' shrieked Juanita Haydock. "'Say, Dave! give us that stunt about the Norwegian catching a hen!" "'You bet! That's a slick stunt! Do that, Dave!' cheered Chet Dashaway. Mr. Dave Dyer obliged. All the guests moved their lips in anticipation of being called on for their own stunts. "'Ella, come on and recite Old Sweetheart of Mine for us!' demanded Sam. Miss Ella Stowbody, the spinster daughter of the Ionic Bank, scratched her dry palms and blushed. "'Oh! You don't want to hear that old thing again!" "'Sure we do! You bet!' asserted Sam. My voice is in terrible shape to-night. "'Tut! Come on!' Samly loudly explained to Carol, "'Ella is our shark at elocuting. She's had professional training. She studied singing and oratory and dramatic art and shorthand for a year in Milwaukee!' Miss Stowbody was reciting. As encore to an old sweetheart of mine she gave a peculiarly optimistic poem regarding the value of smiles. There were four other stunts, one Jewish, one Irish, one juvenile, and Pat Hicks's parody of Mark Antony's funeral oration. During the winter Carol was to hear Dave Dyer's hen-catching impersonation seven times, an old sweetheart of mine nine times, the Jewish story and the funeral oration twice, but now she was ardent, and because she did so want to be happy and simple-hearted, she was as disappointed as the others when the stunts were finished and the party instantly sank back into coma. They gave up trying to be festive. They began to talk naturally, as they did at their shops and homes. The men and women divided, as they had been tending to do all evening. Carol was deserted by the men, left to a group of matrons who steadily pattered of children, sickness and cooks, their own shop-talk. She was piqued. She remembered visions of herself as a smart married woman in a drawing-room, fencing with clever men. Her dejection was relieved by speculation as to what the men were discussing, in the corner between the piano and the phonograph. Did they rise from these housewifely personalities to a larger world of abstractions and affairs? She made her best curtsy to Mrs. Dawson. She twittered, "'I won't have my husband leaving me so soon. I'm going over and pull the wretch's ears.' She rose with a June feel bow. She was self-absorbed and self-approving because she had attained that quality of sentimentality. She proudly dipped across the room, and, to the interest and commendation of all beholders, sat on the arm of Kennicott's chair. He was gossiping with Sam Clark, Luke Dawson, Jackson Elder of the Planing Mill, Chet Dashaway, Dave Dyer, Harry Haydock, and Ezra Stowbody, President of the Ionic Bank. Ezra Stowbody was a troglodyte, He had come to go for prairie in 1865. He was a distinguished bird of prey, swooping thin nose, turtle mouth, thick brows, port wine cheeks, floss of white hair, contemptuous eyes. He was not happy in the social changes of thirty years. Three decades ago, Dr. Westlake, Julius Flickerbaugh the lawyer, Merriman Peaty, the congregational pastor and himself had been the arbiters. That was as it should be. The fine arts, medicine, law, religion, and finance, recognized as aristocratic. Four Yankees, democratically chatting with but ruling the Ohioans and Illini and Swedes and Germans who had ventured to follow them. But Westlake was old, almost retired. Julius Flickerball had lost much of his practice to livelier attorneys. Reverend, not the Reverend, Petey was dead and nobody was impressed in this rotten age of automobiles by the spanking grays which Ezra still drove. The town was as heterogeneous as Chicago. Norwegians and Germans owned stores. The social leaders were common merchants. Selling nails was considered as sacred as banking. These upstarts, the Clarks, the Haydocs, had no dignity. They were sound and conservative in politics but they talked about motor-cars and pump-guns and Heaven only knew what new-fangled fads. Mr. Stowbody felt out of place with them. But his brick house with the mansard roof was still the largest residence in town, and he held his position as squire by occasionally appearing among the younger men and reminding them, by a wintry eye, that without the banker none of them could carry on their vulgar businesses. As Carol defied decency by sitting down with the men, Mr. Stowbody was piping to Mr. Dawson. Say, Luke, when wust Biggins first settled in Winnebago Township? Wasn't it in 1879?" Why, no, twa'nt! Mr. Dawson was indignant. He came out from Vermont in 1867. No wait, in 1868 it must have been, and took a claim on the Rum River, quite a ways above Anoka. He did not! roared Mr. Stowbody. He settled first in Blue Earth County. Him and his father. What's the point at issue? Carol whispered to Kennicott. Whether this old duck Biggins had an English setter or a Llewellyn, they've been arguing it all evening. Dave Dyer interrupted to give tidings, to tell you that Claire Biggins was in town a couple days ago. She bought a hot water bottle, expensive one too, two dollars and thirty cents. Yaw snarled Mr. Stowbody, course, she just like her granddad was, never save a cent. Two dollars and twenty, thirty was it? Two dollars and thirty cents for a hot water bottle? Brick wrapped up in a flannel petticoat just as good, anyway." "'How's Ella's tonsils, Mr. Stowbody?' yawned Chet Dashaway. While Mr. Stowbody gave a somatic and psychic study of them, Carol reflected, Are they really so terribly interested in Ella's tonsils, or even in Ella's esophagus? I wonder if I could get them away from personalities. Let's risk damnation and try." "'There hasn't been much labor trouble around here, has there, Mr. Stowbody?' she asked innocently. "'No, ma'am, thank God, we've been free from that—except maybe with hired girls and farm-hands. Trouble enough with these foreign farmers!' If you don't watch these Swedes they turn Socialist, or Populist or some fool thing on you in a minute. Of course, if they have loans, you can make them listen to reason. I just have them come into the bank for a talk and tell them a few things. I don't mind their being Democrats so much, but I won't stand having Socialists around. But thank God we ain't got the labor trouble they have in these cities. Even Jack Elder here gets along pretty well in the planing mill, don't you, Jack?" Yep, sure. Don't need so many skilled workmen in my place, and it's a lot of these cranky, wage-hogging, half-baked skilled mechanics that start trouble, reading a lot of this anarchist literature and union papers and all." Do you approve of union labor? Carroll inquired of Mr. Elder. Me? I should say not. It's like this. I don't mind dealing with my men if they think they've got any grievances, though Lord knows what's come over workmen nowadays don't appreciate a good job. But still, if they come to me honestly, as man to man, I'll talk things over with them. But I'm not going to have any outsider, any of these walking delegates or whatever fancy names they call themselves now, bunch of rich grifters living on the ignorant workmen, not going to have any of those fellows butting in and telling me how to run my business." Mr. Elder was growing more excited, more belligerent and patriotic. I stand for freedom and constitutional rights. If any man don't like my shop, he can get up and git. Same way if I don't like him, he gets. And that's all there is to it. I simply can't understand all these complications and hoop-de-doodles and government reports and wage scales and God knows what all these fellows are bawling up their labor situation with, when it's all perfectly simple. They like what I pay them, or they get out. That's all there is to it. What do you think of profit-sharing?" Carol ventured. Mr. Elder thundered his answer, while the others nodded, solemnly and in tune, like a shop-window of flexible toys, comic mandarins and judges and ducks and clowns, set quivering by a breeze from the open door. All this profit-sharing and welfare-work and insurance and old-age pensions is simply poppycock, enfeebles a workman's independence, and wastes a lot of honest profit the half-baked thinker that isn't dry behind the ears, and these suffragettes, and God knows what all Badinsky's there, are that are trying to tell a businessman how to run his business. And some of these college professors are just about as bad, the whole kit and billin of them are nothing in God's world but socialism in disguise. And it's my bounden duty, as a producer, to resist every attack on the integrity of American industry to the last ditch. Yes, sir!" Mr. Elder wiped his brow. Dave Dyer added, "'Sure, you bet! What they ought to do is simply to hang every one of these agitators, and that would settle the whole thing right off. Don't you think so, Doc?' "'You bet,' agreed Kennicott." The conversation was at last relieved of the plague of Carol's intrusions, and they settled down to the question of whether the Justice of the Peace had sent that hobo drunk to jail for ten days or twelve. It was a matter not readily determined. Then Dave Dyer communicated his carefree adventures on the Gypsy Trail. Yep, I get a good time out of the flivver. About a week ago I motored down to New Wurttemberg. That's forty-three no, let's see, it's seventeen miles to Beldale, and about six-and-three-quarters, call it seven, to Torgenquist, and it's a good nineteen miles from there to New Wurttemberg. Seventeen and seven and nineteen, that makes ah, let me see. Seventeen and seven's twenty-four, plus nineteen, well, say plus twenty, that makes forty-four. Well, anyway, say about forty-three or four miles from here to New Wurttemberg. We got started about seven-fifteen, probably seven-twenty, because I had to stop and fill the radiator, and we got along just keeping up a good steady gait." Mr. Dyer did finally, for reasons and purposes admitted and justified, attain to New Wurttemberg. Once, only once, the presence of the alien Carol was recognized. Chet Dashaway leaned over and said asthmatically, Say, uh, have you been reading this serial, Two Out in Tingling Tales? Corking yarn. Gosh, the fellow that wrote it certainly can't sling baseball slang. The others tried to look literary. Harry Haydock offered, Juanita is a great hand for reading high class stuff, like. Mid the Magnolias by this Sarah Hedwig and Butts, and Riders of the Ranch Reckless. Books. But me," he glanced about importantly, as one convinced that no other hero had ever been in so strange a plight,—'I'm so darn busy, I don't have much time to read.' "'I never read anything I can't check against,' said Sam Clark. Thus ended the literary portion of the conversation and for seven minutes Jackson Elder outlined reasons for believing that the pike-fishing was better on the west shore of Lake Minimashie than on the east, though it was indeed quite true that on the east shore Nat Hicks had caught a pike altogether admirable. The talk went on. It did go on. Their voices were monotonous, thick, emphatic. They were harshly pompous, like men in the smoking compartment of Pullman cars. They did not bore, Carol. They frightened her!" She panted. "'They will be cordial to me, because my man belongs to their tribe. God help me if I were an outsider!' Smiling as changelessly as an ivory figurine, she sat quiescent, avoiding thought, glancing about the living-room and hall, noting their betrayal of unimaginative commercial prosperity. Kennicott said, "'Dandy interior, eh? My idea of how a place ought to be furnished! modern." She looked polite, and observed the oiled floors, hardwood staircase, unused fireplace with tiles which resembled brown linoleum, cut-glass vases standing upon doilies, and the barred, shut, forbidding unit bookcases, that were half filled with swashbuckler novels and unread-looking sets of Dickens, Kipling, O. Henry, and Elbert Hubbard. She perceived that even personalities were failing to hold the party. The room filled with hesitancy as with a fog. People cleared their throats, tried to choke down yawns. Men shot their cuffs and women stuck their combs more firmly into their back hair. Then a rattle, a daring hope in every eye, the swinging of a door, the smell of strong coffee, Dave Dyer's mewing voice in a triumphant, "'They eats!' They began to chatter. They had something to do. They could escape from themselves. They fell upon the food, chicken sandwiches, maple cake, drugstore ice cream. Even when the food was gone they remained cheerful. They could go home any time now and go to bed. They went, with a flutter of coats, chiffon scarfs, and goodbyes. Carol and Kennicott walked home. ''Did you like them?'' He asked. ''They were terribly sweet to me.'' ''Uh, Carrie?'' You ought to be more careful about shocking folks. Talking about gold stockings, and about showing your ankles to school-teachers and all." More mildly, "...you gave them a good time, but I'd watch out for that, if I were you. What a haydock is such a damn cat. I wouldn't give her a chance to criticize me." My poor effort to lift up the party! Was I wrong to try to amuse them? No, no! Honey, I didn't mean you were the only up-and-coming person in the bunch. I just mean... don't get on to legs and all that immoral stuff. Pretty conservative crowd." She was silent, raw with the shameful thought that the attentive circle might have been criticizing her, laughing at her. "'Don't, please don't worry,' he pleaded. Silence. "'Gosh, I'm sorry I spoke about it. I just meant... but they were crazy about you. Sam said to me, "'That little lady of yours is the slickest thing that ever came to this town,' he said, "'and Ma Dawson, I didn't hardly know whether she'd like you or not, she's such a dried-up old bird, but she said, "'Your bride is so quick and bright, I declare, she just wakes me up.'" Carol liked praise, the flavor and fatness of it, but she was so energetically being sorry for herself that she could not taste this commendation. "'Please, come on, cheer up!' His lips said it, his anxious shoulder said it, his arm about her said it, as they halted on the obscure porch of their house. Do you care if they think I'm flighty, Will? Me? Why, I wouldn't care if the whole world thought you were this or that or anything else. You're my—well, you're my soul!" He was an undefined mass, as solid-seeming as a rock. She found his sleeve, pinched it, cried. I'm glad. It's sweet to be wanted. You must tolerate my frivolousness. You're all I have." He lifted her, carried her into the house, and with her arms about his neck she forgot Main Street.
0: End of Chapter 4